Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. Mark two fifteen through 17. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Hey, thank you, Kim. Hey, well, good morning. It is good to see you, all of you. Um, we are starting a brand new series. I'm excited about it. It's called, Did Jesus Really Say That? Of course, the answer is, yes, he did. And uh, why does it matter? Uh, so often, as we read through uh, the pages of the Gospels, we uh, read Scripture and we interpret it through the lens of 21st century suburbanites in Eagle River, Alaska. And uh, often when we read things, uh, as we try to make sense of it, uh, we, we put it through the lens of our context, but in doing so, sometimes we, we miss the bigger point. Or sometimes there are things that Jesus would say that people just didn't understand, or we don't understand, well, what did that mean? And sometimes people in Jesus' time said, what? Did he really say that? So we're in good company. And so what we want to do over the next few weeks is look at the scripture, uh, look at some of the teachings of Jesus, try to understand the context uh, that he taught within and apply it to our context today and try to make sense of some things um, that maybe we struggle with. Like, have you ever wondered uh, why uh, we should pluck out our right eye or cut off our right hand or turn the other cheek, right? Or hate our mother and father. Did he really say that, right? And so on and so forth. Uh, there are several passages that we'll take a look at and we'll, we'll try to bring clarity to and application to. So I'm excited about this. I hope you are. But I thought I'd, I'd start with one today um, that appears to be obvious and yet not quite as obvious as we may think it is. Okay? And of course, we're looking at uh, the story of the call of Levi in Mark's Gospel in chapter 2. Um, you all know that the last year or so, um, I've had a, just a series of health setbacks. I've had uh, multiple shoulder surgeries. I've had inner ear surgery. Um, it's, it, and Lori, of course, uh, introduced a new member of our family, uh, Annie the aneurysm. Uh, that was an interesting ride. 
Um, so we've had all kinds of things in the last year. But as I think about that, uh, I look back even farther. And for me, the kind of the decline, if you will, started in 2007. Uh, and I'd had a series of back injuries and then I re-injured it in 2007. And it just didn't get better. You kept waiting and waiting and waiting. You know how you do when you hurt yourself? And it just didn't get better. So I go to the doctor and he says, well, it looks like uh, you have a, a degenerating disc and it's impinging upon a nerve. And, and uh, I know you need surgery and you know you need surgery, but the insurance company has a year worth of protocols that you're going to have to go through before they're okay the surgery. And so there was lots of physical therapy and then there were introduction of various kinds of pain-killing and anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, then there were... Uh, injections into my back, uh, and then it all culminated with some barbaric test called a discogram. Right? It's unlike any disco I'd ever been to, um, where they actually try to replicate the pain that you're having by creating that pain by sticking a needle in your back. Uh, oh, it was, it was joyous. Uh, I think I flopped up off the table. Uh, it was so bad. You know, I woke up in the middle of the conscious sedation. I remember it all. Um, but I ended up having to have my back fused in 2008, L5-S1, right? Uh, and then two shoulder replacements, two subsequent additional surgeries to the shoulder, the ear surgery, and on and on and on it goes. So things uh, started to change dramatically for me in 2007. And uh, as I come to grips with my physical limitations, and uh, the world of chronic pain, some days are better than others, but every day hurts. Um, and I know many of you can relate to that. As I come to grips with that, I think about what is it that I miss the most? And uh, as I was looking out today at the rain and the wind, I was reminded of, of something that I really miss. Uh, and that is uh, running. I used to be an avid jogger, a runner. In fact, on Sundays after church, I had a jogging partner. His name was John Anderson. John and I, uh, we lived in Sacramento. John and I would go to a Folsom Lake, and we'd run all the way around the lake. We'd run 10, 12 miles on a Sunday afternoon uh, after church. And it was just glorious. Just, you know, the exertion, the physicality. Uh, there were days when you just felt like you were on top of the world, and you could just run forever. And John... Boy, you'd have to know John. John was, uh, imagine a pirate. Right, Lori? Yeah? John was uh, a former biker, came to faith in Christ. He was really rough around the edges, um, but he had a heart for the Lord. And uh, he still rode his Harley, and he did some things. I lived kind of a, a life on the edge, John did. But when we'd run, he'd put on his do-rag. That would be like a scarf around his head, you know, like he was getting ready to go on his, his chopper. Uh, throw on his running shoes, and we would run. And uh, I remember it was a day like this. It was just pouring rain. It had been hailing. There was thunder. There was lightning. And we're running along uh, Lake Folsom, and uh, there's just this huge pile of muddy water. It's just, right? 
and I'm running along the trail, and I just kind of like, oops, and I try to go up around it, tiptoe around it. John, man, John just runs right through it. Mud splashes everywhere. He's just a mess. He's got this smile, and he looks at me. I'm trying to tiptoe. He splashed me, you know, and I'm trying to tiptoe around it and, and try to stay clean, you know, and, and he looks at me and says, you know, Todd, some people try to run around troubles in life. Other people just face them head on. <laughs> okay, John. Right. Uh, then another time uh, we're running, it was a Saturday morning because we couldn't run Saturday, Sunday afternoon. It was a Saturday morning and we were running these rolling hills that surrounded the lake. And we run up this hill and we come down and all of a sudden here's this whole herd of cattle. They're just free-ranging back in the hills. And we're running along, and all of a sudden there's this one steer that turns and starts to run towards us. Well, there's a huge oak tree there along the, the pathway, and I just immediately get behind the oak tree. What do you think John did? John ran right at that steer. Yelling at it, right? The steer stopped and said, this guy's crazy. (laughs) Turned and ran in the opposite direction, okay? Then John, with his sage biker wisdom, looked at me and says, you know, Todd, there are some people in life that run from adversity and challenge. There are others that face it head on. I say, okay, John. Yeah. All right? But, but that was John Anderson. Uh, he had a company. He laid carpet. And I'll never forget our church in Sonoma County. Uh, John, uh, he, he purchased carpet for our church. Right? He didn't charge us. And then he came and he laid the carpet for our church. And I'll never forget, here's this man, right? He's, he's, a, he's a, a big kind of... Strong-looking guy. He's not very tall, but he takes this roll of carpet. Must have been three hundred pounds, and he just bends down, picks it up, and throws it over his shoulder, and walks it into the church. I mean, that was John Anderson, right? So I miss running with John Anderson. Uh, my physical limitations. Um, I don't run anymore. I have a few more pounds on me, but that's what I miss. That's what I was thinking of this morning. I just haven't been as healthy uh, as I was up until then. In fact, two things. When I went in to see the doctor prior to the back surgery, he said, you know you have degenerative disc disease? I go, what? What's that? He goes, well, you have a genetic predisposition, your discs, that they uh, would deteriorate slowly. I go, I do? He says, yeah, you do. In fact, let me show you some of your other discs. You know, like a look into your future. Okay, we're going to start with L5S1, but we're going to move into the future here. Let's look at uh, L3, L4, you know, that kind of thing. And they're all in various phases of deterioration. And uh, he said, you know, all those years of running, all those years of weightlifting, all those years of physical activity, you know, that you have just been doing most of your life. I said, yeah. He goes, you know, that exacerbated, he said, that exacerbated your, your condition. It means what was going to happen is just going to happen sooner for you because you just have worn your, your body out. 
I said, oh, really? Then when I went and I had my first shoulder replacement, the doctor said to me, he said, uh, Todd, he goes, you probably lifted a lot of weights in your day. I said, well, yes, doctor, I did. He goes, did anyone ever tell you that the shoulder is not a weight-bearing joint? I said, well, no, doctor, you're the very first one. He kind of just shook his head, you know. So all this time, you know, I thought running and lifting weights and, and doing the things that I did. Uh, on the outside, I looked really healthy. I looked very strong. I looked very fit. Uh, but on the inside, I wasn't as fit as I looked. I was slowly just kind of deteriorating and my body internally was wasting away. So I have all these orthopedic problems now going into my <clears throat> senior years. By the way, a couple weeks ago was my 60th birthday. Hey, hey, I paid $8 for a movie. It was great. And I'm not ashamed, okay? It was just wonderful. Uh, just wonderful. Age has its benefits and privileges. So, all that to say... I worked really hard at getting in shape and staying in shape, and I had an exercise regime. I ran, I lifted weights, I swam, I did all these things. On the outside, I looked great, but on the inside, it's like a house with termites, just kind of falling apart and slowly deteriorating, and I didn't even know it. And in fact, The things I was doing to stay in shape were contributing to my decline. But I didn't recognize it, and I really didn't know it. How many of you remember uh, an author and runner? He really started the, um, uh, the, the jogging fitness craze. His name was Jim Fix. Anybody remember Jim Fix? Okay. It was interesting. Uh, Lamenting about not being able to run anymore, uh, I came across an article about Jim Fix. Actually, it's his obituary from 1984. So that's 34 years ago. I'm just going to read for you an excerpt from that. He said, uh, James F. Fix, who spurred the jogging craze with his best-selling books about running and preached the gospel Every active, the active people live longer, died of a heart attack while jogging. He was 52 years old. Mr. Fix, a former magazine editor and author of five books, among them, The Complete Book of Running, was found at 5.30 p.m. by the side of Route 15 in Hardwick, I think it was Connecticut, by a motorcyclist. Police arrived, several passerbyers attempted to resuscitate the fallen runner, dressed only in shorts and without identification. An autopsy later revealed that Mr. Fix died of a massive heart attack and that two of his coronary arteries were sufficiently blocked to warrant a bypass operation. Interesting. According to Mr. Fix's sister, he was most aware of the signs of coronary heart disease because their father's death from a heart attack at age 43. 
she said that her brother believed himself to be in good health. There's an irony in this, she said, no doubt about it. But he had no indication that he ought to check with his friendly cardiologist. The irony was not lost on a man named Fred Lebo, the president of the New York Roadrunners Club. And he was also a guiding light in the uh, New York City Marathon. He said, we, we know that running doesn't cause heart attacks and may, in fact, prolong life. What I'm concerned about now is all those people who talk about the danger of running. What does this, in other words, what happened to Jim, prove to them? Sure, we have people dying in Central Park one or two a year while running. But I'm sure more people die on the golf course or watching the Yankees play baseball. Maybe if Mr. Fix didn't run, he would have died five years ago. Mr. Fix's concern about his hereditary predisposition to heart disease, his father Calvin, was stricken at the age of 35, contributed to his decision to take up jogging. When he began in 1967 to rehabilitate a tendon he pulled while playing tennis, he weighed 220 pounds and smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. He ran his first race five miles long in 1970. And Mr. Fix finished last among 50 runners, impressed that the winner was a man in his 60s. As his passion for running increased, he stopped smoking, changed his eating habits, lost 61 pounds, and proclaimed in the introduction of his first book on running that his purpose was first to introduce you to the extraordinary world of running and second to change your life. Despite that bold claim, and his subsequent popularity on the lecture circuit, this guru of running whose book, first book earned him more than $1 million, now that was back like in 1970, right? Presents a balanced account of the conflicting medical evidence and the connection between jogging and good health. He ultimately concluded that although the evidence is inconclusive, most of it clearly suggests that running is more likely to increase that decrease longevity because research has repeatedly shown that with such endurance training as running, the heart becomes distinctly more efficient and capable of doing more while working less hard. Jim Fix, All right? As I think about John Anderson my days of running and excessive physical fitness. As I think about Jim Fix and his quest to beat cardiac heart disease that took his father at an early age and uh, his uh, avid running, his writing, his lecturing, uh, his encouraging many others to get into physical shape. Um, I think about how what we do on the outside with the body is just so temporary. It's like what Lori says. She reminds me of every morning when I look in the mirror. She says, Todd, don't worry about it. Gravity always wins. Okay? And it's true. Uh, Regardless of how hard we train, of how devoted we are to our external physical fitness, uh, sooner or later, right, wear and tear and time takes its toll. And short of Jesus returning while we are still physically alive on earth, 
Every single one of us is going to die. And we're going to die of something. In fact, like Mr. Fix and like myself with my genetic predisposition to degenerative disc disease, um, some of us have physical predispositions um, toward certain parts of our body wearing out sooner than other people. And many of you know about that, and, and you have those. We can look at genetics and family history and all the things we're at risk at. And no matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we try, all we can do is delay the inevitable. That's true. Okay? You've heard the old expression, nobody gets out of here alive. Well, what does that have to do with Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and the call of Levi, who is Matthew, the author of the first gospel, um, to follow Jesus? What does it have to do with that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Okay? You see in this story, um, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and Jesus... And this really is a good way to kick off our new series because they both had very similar approaches to spiritual health, yet they were markedly different. And you, you see the difference here. It comes out loud and clear. Now, we know that Levi was a tax collector. He was a Jew who worked for the Roman government. And I have to tell you, the only thing more despised that an agent of the Roman government was a Jewish agent of the Roman government in Palestine. Okay? It's like, what in the world are you doing aiding and abetting the enemy? But many worked alongside the Romans to their financial benefit. Levi, or Matthew, was one of them. And he worked in a region that was a very strategic region. There was a Roman military garrison there. But it also was a road uh, that was known for lots of travel for merchants for trade. And so whether he was working at a toll booth, taxing people, applying tariffs and taxes for merchants who were going with trade through this route, or whether he was collecting taxes as an agent of the Roman government from the Jewish people who lived there, Levi was a person who was despised by fellow Jews. Now, the passage that we're looking at is situated in a section of Mark's gospel where Jesus is going about He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. And this is one of several stories of the miraculous works of Jesus, whether it be a physical healing or a spiritual healing, bringing good news in a person's life. And it's fixed in that section of Mark's gospel where there, there are several other stories around it. But this one is a call from Jesus for Levi to follow after him. Now, you know, back in Jesus' time, 
uh, rabbis would surround themselves with the best and the brightest students. And their disciples uh, would be uh, the top learners, the ones who got an A in uh, temple studies, if you will. And in fact, it was customary for uh, a student to go to the rabbi and say, can I be your disciple? And the rabbis would have their their pick of the best and the brightest. And they would invite those who were the best and the brightest, who had demonstrated their biblical acumen, if you will, right? Um, To join them and to be their disciples. Jesus was much different. Whether it was walking the Sea of Galilee or along the road, coming to the booth of a tax collector, Jesus didn't call the best and the brightest. In fact, it was out of the ordinary for a rabbi to call the disciple. The disciple is supposed to come and ask the rabbi, can I be your disciple? And Jesus called around him and surrounding themselves with those who were um, marginal. If, if they had been students in the temple or Jewish studies, if you will, they were the ones that after they were done were said, you know, you better find a trade. Maybe you should be a carpenter or a fisherman or you better find something else. You, you could never cut it as a rabbi. You just don't have what it takes. Right? And so here's Jesus and he's, he's going along and he's inviting all of these who would be overlooked and not even considered worthy of being a, a, a real disciple of a rabbi. He's calling those kind of people to himself to say, follow me. He's giving them the invitation. That in and of itself, I mean, that is extraordinary. In fact, other rabbis probably looked at him and said, what is he doing? It's like trying to build a championship sports franchise by drafting the least and the last and trying to make them the best. Doesn't make sense, does it? Who would do that? Well, that's what Jesus was doing here. And that's what he does as he calls his disciples. And so he calls Levi. And the scripture says, as we look here in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, That while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Many tax collectors were gathered there. Sinners were there. Now understand... That in Jesus' time, to break bread, to have table fellowship was to accept a person, to welcome them wholeheartedly into your life. It was to validate them. Now, obviously, Jesus wasn't validating sin. But what was he validating? The people, his love for them, his concern for them, his heart for them. Jesus met them with his head, his heart, and his hands. He was fully present and engaged in their lives to demonstrate God's love for them, for the least and the last. Now, what is the response of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? 
These were the spiritual athletes of their day. These were the ones that understood the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, right? The law. They understood the prophets. They had studied it excessively. They knew the teaching. And of course, that was the means through which the Jewish people understood their relationship with God was through the law and the prophets. And so they took that very seriously because that guided their relationship with him. It was important. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these were the best and the brightest. These were the spiritual leaders. These were the finely tuned spiritual athletes of their time. They were the ones that everybody looked to as the example. They were fit. They were the ones that were in the best shape. In verse 16, it says, When the teachers of the law and the Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he do that? I mean, he's violating all the social, cultural, and spiritual protocols of his time just to be in their presence, to have table fellowship, to eat with them is to become unclean. I mean, he's setting a bad example. Why would he do that? You see, it didn't make sense to them. Well, Jesus, verse 17, on hearing this, said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. All right. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you were a righteous Jewish teacher, leader, one who studied the law and the prophets, one who spent your entire life investing in following the over 613 traditional number of combined commandments and prohibitions that were reckoned by the rabbis. They all agreed there were at least 613 you needed to follow. If you had devoted and committed your life to that, When Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners, they'd say, did Jesus really say that? Did he really say that? You've got to be kidding. Now, looking back at 2,000 years of, of church history and teaching and writing and commentaries, and you say, well, of course. Of course he did. But we missed the point. We missed the point of of what this really meant at that time. There were other encounters that Jesus had with the leaders. Matthew 11, 19, Jesus says this. He says, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, 
came eating and drinking, and they say, speaking of the religious leaders, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Notice the exclamation point. In Luke 7.39, Jesus had been invited to dinner by a Pharisee, and while he was there, there was a woman of of ill repute, a woman of questionable reputation who comes in and does what? She throws herself at the feet of Jesus. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man really were a prophet, he would know who he is touching or who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Then in Luke 15, Verse 2. And really, this is what begins uh, Jesus teaching um, the parable of uh, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, the prodigal son. This is the comment that really is the impetus for his teaching. Pharisees and scribes began to grumble. And they said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. So you can see Jesus' practice and understanding of the law and the prophets and its application was different than those of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Um, I was reading one uh, biblical scholar while I was away uh, recently. And he was saying that in Jesus' time, it was not uncommon for rabbis to look at the law and the prophets and to try to understand them and apply them to their context. And so consequently, you had different schools of teachers and teaching. And it wasn't uncommon, if we see in the Gospels, where the Pharisees or the scribes or the teachers of the law would ask Jesus a question pertaining to the law. What do you say about this? And really they wanted clarification because they were in disagreement. And they wanted Jesus to side with one or the other to bring clarification from Jesus' perspective. And often what Jesus did was he didn't side with one or the other. What Jesus did is he presented a whole new perspective. One that had never been taught or understood before. Now, That wasn't completely out of the ordinary because that's what they did. They tried to come up with the best contemporary contextual application for the ancient writings and teachings. But here's what this scholar points out. Where Jesus got into trouble was that he not only gave a different interpretation, something that was different than had ever been taught before. But when he did it, he did it in such a way that placed himself at the center of it. In other words, it's more than just understanding the correct application in our context. It's understanding who the law and the prophet 
is foreshadowing. What is it really all about? And what got Jesus into trouble with his contemporaries was that he placed himself in the middle of it all. It's about me. That's what he's saying. That's what got him in trouble. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, the law and the prophets, through them, the Jews attempted to understand God, understood their relationship with God, and sought to live a life that they believed God required them to live. Okay? But the law and the prophets were never intended to be the end-all, be-all. They were intended to point them to the person of Jesus, who was the fulfillment of them, whom the law and the prophets spoke of and foreshadowed Jesus and his work, his sacrificial work of atonement on the cross. Right? So it wasn't intended to replace him. It wasn't intended to be in uh, something exclusive from him. It was intended to, to point the way to him. And for them to understand how desperately they needed him. Because the law could save a person. If a person were keep, capable of keeping the law. Because it was God's perfect moral standard. But there was no one that was capable. There was no one that was able. Because if you break one part of the law, you break the entire law. Do you understand that? And so the law couldn't save because no one could keep the law apart from one person. Guess who that was? Jesus. And because he was able to keep it, all of it, because it was all about him, because he's in the center of it all. He is the one who could become the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The lamb without spot or blemish. Do you see that? Now here's where he gets in trouble. Again, if you read down from Matthew 5, 17, 18, 19, then you get to 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Did Jesus really say that? If, if they can't enter the kingdom of heaven, how can I? I mean, they are the quintessential followers of the law. They interpret the law. They lead us in our understanding of the law. If they're not good enough, with their understanding and application of law, then, then who can be? That's the point. No one can. That the righteousness that's necessary for us to become participants in the kingdom of heaven is a righteousness that's imputed to us by God himself through his son, Jesus Christ. The scripture says that 
Jesus takes on our sin so that we might be washed of sin and that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ. Does that make sense? Here's the difference. The teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they understood the law. They understood the teachings of the law and the prophets through the lens of external conformity to rules. If we conform externally, if we externally are in good shape, if we practice good spiritual discipline, we'll be in good enough shape for God. If we work out, if we're diligent, if we study, if we pour over the law, if we apply it to our lives, we'll have a righteousness that satisfies God in his call to holiness. You see that? That's their thinking. It's external conformity versus Jesus, who is about internal transformation. You see, righteousness doesn't come from what we do from the outside in. It's what happens from the inside out. And that's made possible through relationship with Christ. Look at it this way. Rather than righteousness that comes from external conformity, it's inside-out righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And his work in our life. His work on the cross. You see that? Years and years and years and years ago, when Lori and I were first married and we'd be getting ready for church, I, 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 we went to a church where you had to dress up. And you had to wear a shirt and a tie. Or if you didn't wear a, a shirt and a tie, you had to have a, you know, a nice sweater, some jacket or something. And I was in school and Lori was working and I was working part time and all these things were going on. And, and often I'd go to the closet on Sunday morning to try to grab a shirt, and guess what? They were all wrinkled. They were wrinkled. And Lori would say, here, quick, Todd, grab a sweater. And I'd put a sweater over my shirt so nobody would know that my shirt was wrinkled. And I'd go to church, but it bothered me. Remember, Lori, I used to say, Lori, it's like sin. It's like You know it's there, even though you cover it up and other people can't see it. You know it's there and God knows it's there. I know that I'm wearing a wrinkled shirt and God does too. Remember that, honey? Remember I used to go into that tirade? Yeah? It just would bug me. Yeah, she says, I'm keeping my mouth shut. Oh, man. Mother Teresa. But that's the difference here. Jesus says, hey, I know your shirt is wrinkled. You don't have to cover it up. The nicest sweater you wear doesn't change the fact your shirt is wrinkled. You can do your best to conform to all the external conformities of the law. But guess what? Your heart is wrinkled. There's sin in your life. And the law can't save you. Only I can. Right? It's inside out righteousness. 
that Jesus is talking about. Galatians 3.24. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the law was to guide us. It was to be a, a temporary custodian to lead us to Christ. Hebrews 10.1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. It's a shadow. It's just a glimpse. Christ is the end of the law, Romans 10.4, in order to bring righteousness to everyone who believes. Right? What did Jesus say in Matthew 5.17? I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to do what? To fulfill it. To complete it. I am all that it looked to. I am the one that, that, that it was intended to guide you to. Completeness is found in me, Jesus says. And so you, you see the tension, don't you, between the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, and Jesus. Luke 19.10. It's interesting. This comes at the end of, a, of another story where Jesus calls Zacchaeus, another tax collector. Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and save who? The righteous. The ones who have it all together. The ones who are self-sufficient. The ones who have demonstrated their desire and their ability to keep the law. Is that who Jesus came to save? He came to save and seek and save the lost. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, you know what? I exchange all of my righteousness, all of my achievement, of my standing in the synagogue in the temple. I consider it rubbish compared to the, to the glory of the knowledge, the relationship with Christ, the Son of God. That's where true life is found. That's where I derive my righteousness. Why is it that we still come to church wearing sweaters over our wrinkled shirts and blouses? Why is it that we continue to try as best we can to meet God's requirement for holiness when we fall miserably short and we know it? Why do we strive and strive and strive and strive to do something that only Christ can do for us? Why are we ashamed to admit our weakness you know, if we're going to be a church that brings Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and our world, 
Folks, we have to admit that we need Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness. We have to say, here, look at my wrinkled life. I need Jesus, and so do you. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call those that are sick, that are unhealthy, who are lost in a disease called sin. And what can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I pray and I ask that you quit striving and trying to save yourselves from a righteousness that comes from your own spiritual effort. You can be like Jim Fix. You can be running along and what happened? They looked like they were in such great shape. When inside, he was dying of coronary heart disease. The truth is this. We can be great spiritual athletes. We can follow the law. We can try to create a righteousness that comes through our own effort, our own strength. But in the end, the penalty for sin is death. But the free gift of God is salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Remember John Anderson? The last time I saw John was in Rockland, California. His house, the kitchen window in his backyard looked out over the the railway that went from Lake Tahoe to Sacramento. And he was about 120 pounds, 115 pounds. He had a bandage around his head from his most recent brain surgery. He was wasting away. And he'd sit all day long at his kitchen table with his cat looking at the trains go by. Dying. And he knew it. He had a brain tumor. Cancer. And I went to visit him. And I spent the afternoon with him and we talked. And this is what he told me. And he asked me to share this with you. I've never shared this with anybody. He said, will you tell people this, Todd? Please tell people this. Tell people in church this. He said, Todd, my whole life, I thought I had it all together. I was self-sufficient. I was at the top of my game. He goes, but I thank God for this cancer. Because it took this for me to realize how desperately I need Jesus. And how everything else had just been me trying to work things out in my own strength. He goes, but now I have no strength. And all I have is Jesus. And now, as I'm dying, I truly know life. I wished I'd have found it sooner. But I thank God I did before I died. That's what he told me. 
He said, all those people at church, they're, they're, they're living and they're, 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 you know, they're going to church with a wrinkled shirt and a sweater over it. And they think they have life. And they think they have it all together. He goes, would you tell them? Would you tell them to let go of all that stuff and their own efforts and, and, and their own self-righteousness and their own achievement and accomplishment and striving? Would you tell them that life is found only in Jesus, Todd, would you tell them? Those were his last words to me. I hugged him. I was afraid I was going to crush him. And I said goodbye. I knew I'd never see him again. It was shortly after that he died. But he gave me a gift. A gift that he wanted me to give to you today. Life is only found in Jesus. Not in your efforts, not in your striving, not in your trying to be a good enough person, but in Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word, for the reminder of where true life is found. God, we thank you for inside-out righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, not a righteousness that comes through obedience, through external conformity to the law, but a righteousness that comes from Christ. Father, we thank you for his shed blood on the cross. Father, we thank you that it cleanses us from our sin and puts us in right standing with you. That we not only have eternal life, but we have new life with new purpose and new meaning. And Father, we don't have to wait to the end till we have to trust you. We can trust you now. And Father, I pray to whatever extent any of us here are resting on our own strength, our own abilities, or think that somehow we have to appease you through our own efforts and our keeping the law. Father, that you would turn our hearts from external conformity, that you'd turn them inside out, and that we'd we really embrace the righteousness that is ours in Christ. Father, thank you for John Anderson. Thank you for the message of his life and what he wanted us to know today, that true life isn't found in our own effort, our own striving, but it's found in a relationship with Christ. His work on the cross and his work in our life. Lord, we thank you for that. Help us to embrace that wholeheartedly. Did Jesus really say that? Yes, he did. And it matters. Amen.